It seems as if ever since Paul penned the words of 1 Corinthians 13, people have been drawn to its amazing content. One author, theologian, I don't necessarily wholeheartedly endorse, expresses, however, I think how how people often come to this chapter. His name was Adolf von Harnack. And he says that this chapter stands as the greatest, strongest, deepest thing that Paul ever wrote. While his statement is a bit overstated in light of the inspiration of the Spirit in the Scriptures, it does highlight how this text is often viewed by people who approach it. This chapter attracts both believer and unbeliever alike, yet people often use it in ways that uh, do not cohere with its true original meaning. Many people come to 1 Corinthians 13 without any real idea of its place in the original writings of the Apostle Paul and consequently use this text to do a whole host of things it was never intended to do. Sometimes, for instance, sinning believers will come to chapter 13 and will declare or will uh, will use this chapter to declare that the condemnation of their favorite sin is unloving or hateful. Other times, churches will tolerate a culture where sin is prevalent in the name of showing or demonstrating Christian love. You need to put up with that, because that's what love does. Sometimes a church's commitment to doctrinal fidelity and what the scriptures actually teach is branded by others as being unloving. Other times, a whole host of doctrinal errors of various sorts are tolerated because churches feel that it's a proper demonstration of Christian love. Not too long ago, I heard an offending spouse with a terrible track record demand forgiveness from his or her husband or wife because love believes all things. But is that actually what that passage means? And is that the, these misuses, are, are these what 1 Corinthians 13 is given to us for? Throughout chapter 13, Paul has a great deal to say about love, and uh, these statements are made in a certain context. One of the, the greatest values of going through the text in an expositional fashion is that our study will recognize the contours of this text and recognize that this chapter comes in the middle of a three-chapter section. Uh, it becomes apparent to us as you read through the, the book that the Corinthians, the Corinthians had asked Paul a series of questions about miraculous spiritual gifts and that his specific answer to their questions comes in chapter 14. Before he gets to their answers about those gifts, in chapter 12, he lays out a theology of spiritual gifts, and in chapter 13, he describes the value of love in exercising those gifts. So in chapter 13, the study we're, we're going to start today, uh, this, the, the teaching comes in three sections. In three sections, verses 1 through 3, verses 4 through 7, and verses 8 through 13. And uh, what I'm doing in our outline, if, if you've got the outline in front of you this morning, is 
uh, I'm giving one Pauline statement to, uh, to help us understand the main teaching of each section. We're going to look at the first two sections today, verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 through 7, and we'll give this, make this one Pauline statement which summarizes each section. And so first, Paul clearly demonstrates to the Corinthians in verses 1 through 3 that love is more important than gifts. That's how I define verses 1 through 3. Love is more important than gifts or than your gifts, Corinthians. In these verses, Paul will describe six gifts that we've already seen, we've already learned that the Corinthian believers valued. In each one of these cases, what we learn is that these gifts that they value are worth nothing without love. So look down in your Bible at verse 1. In verse 1, we'll read in, in just a moment where we'll see that Paul explains that tongues are only annoying unless they are expressed in love. Look at verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Here, Paul explains that even if someone had a perfect expression of tongue speaking, the tongues of men and angels, it still would not accomplish much without love. Now, to properly understand verse 3, there are just three little parts to it that you need to look at a little bit more closely. First of all, the first part is this phrase, the tongues of men and angels. And the first part of that phrase, I think, is pretty easy. He's talking about human speech, and he's asking the Corinthians to imagine uh, someone having the ability to perform well in human speech or human speaking. The second part is a bit harder, though. He says, uh, if I speak in the tongue of men and of angels. So what is the tongues of angels? Well, Paul might be exaggerating here for, for an effect. He, uh, he, so, so he might be saying, you know, if someone has perfect speech, human speech, even to the point where they could speak perfectly in, in a heavenly dialect, if that were possible, or uh, he might also be confronting the way some of the Corinthian believers viewed the gift of speaking in tongues. Uh, there's a lot of controversy, of course, about this phrase, the tongues of angels, but it may be that some of the Corinthian believers claim to be able to speak in the language of angels or the dialect of heaven when they spoke in tongues. Now I would say that if that's what the Corinthians thought about tongues, that there's really not a lot in Scripture at all to substantiate that sort of idea. For uh, in the Scriptures, when we come across angels speaking, we're not aware of any sort of specific angelic language. Further, as you go to the scriptures, every time believers actually hear angels speaking, they understand it in their own language. So I think of like Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah hears the seraphim around the throne of God, and he knows what they're saying. What are they saying? Holy, holy, holy to the Lord God of hosts. So I think it's a, a, a bit of a debatable topic whether or not angels have their own dialect or not. But, uh, but Paul plays to the understanding of the Corinthians in their gifts, in my opinion. 
And he asked the Corinthians to imagine having the ultimate level of linguistic ability, perfection, in tongue speaking. Now, I think that would probably give goosebumps to many of the Corinthians, as I understand it. Ooh, ultimate tongue speaking. But I think that Paul is actually using hyperbole here, or he's using exaggeration to make a point. I think what is obvious, if you keep reading in verses 2 and 3, that Paul's laying out these, like, perfection of the gifts that are not even attainable for any person anyway. So that's the first part of verse 1. He implies here and throughout that no one could achieve this level of tongue-speaking anyway. But, but there are actually three parts to verse 1. Next, Paul speaks of love. He says, even if someone could attain to perfection in tongue speaking, but have not love. The word love that's used here, you've often heard preaching on 1 Corinthians 13, I'm sure. You've heard that it's the word agape. This is agape love. The word love speaks of selfless affection. I think love is probably the best English translation to help us with this word. It's better than the old English word that's often used in its place, charity. One of the reasons I think it's better than charity in in modern English is because when we think of charity, what do we think of? We think of the giving away of all of our things or possession, or giving away of something of our possession, that's charity. But uh, look in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3. I just want to read a section of this and, and help you to see I think love's a better translation. Look at verse 3, the very first phrase. If I give away all I have, what is that? What English word would you use to describe that? If I give away all that I have, charity. Now go to the end of the verse. But have not, if we use the word charity, it doesn't make sense. But have not charity, it's nothing. It doesn't make sense in that way. So I think it's better to translate this word love throughout here selfless affection. And so Paul is saying, if I have, in verse 1, if I have perfection in tongue speaking, but do so without demonstrating love to others, then there is a result in verse 1. I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, he says. If you've got notes in your bulletin, you can see that I've got a uh, a quotation from someone I think that helps us understand this a bit more. His name is Gregory Lockwood. And his perspective on this is, he says, a loveless tongue speaker is no better than a noisy brass or a clashing cymbal. Not melodious, but monotonous and annoying to the ear. I think that's the point that Paul's making in verse 1. You can be the most gifted of all tongue speakers, but if you don't exercise your gift In love, it's monotonous and annoying. Have you ever experienced a loud mass of different conversations before in a small area? A loud mass of conversations in a small area. I mean, how pleasant is that, right? I know that when I ask a question like that, immediately some parents remember what it sounds like on their family trips in the vehicle. I can remember times as a parent when my children were small when the vehicle felt extremely small. 
It could have been a suburban or a van, but it felt very small. And the decibel levels felt extremely high. Those moments in parenting, I'll just say, adjustments were made. Adjustments were made. So that you could bring communication and conversation to chaos. As Paul is talking about tongue speakers, he's critiquing some who are obsessed with a gift and doing so in a self-focused way. He's calling self-focused tongue speakers in Corinth, as one man described it, he's calling them a bunch of loud clangers. They make noise, but it's not helping anyone. That leads Paul, that critique of tongue leads him in verse 2 to lump together four other gifts and issue the same disclaimer about those gifts. Look down in your Bible at verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Here are the gifts of prophecy, understanding, knowledge, and the wonder-working spiritual gift of faith do not guarantee that a believer is anything. Now, we've seen all of these gifts before in chapter 12, but notice that with the last three of them, Paul attaches the word all to them. And I think what he's doing when he does that with this word all, Paul asks the Corinthians again to imagine perfection or the full measure of any of these one Uh, Any of these gifts. So Paul says something like this. He says, even the full measure of faith that would enable you to move a mountain or move mountains will accomplish nothing unless the believer uses the gift of faith in a loving way. So then in verse 3, Paul adds one last gift. This list of six gifts here. Paul speaks about the gift of giving. He says, look at verse 3, if I give away all that I have, I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Here when Paul says give away, he uses a very strong word in the original, one word that means to dole out or to fritter away. To me, as I looked at the word, I I think this is a word that carries the sense of a slow, systematic giving away of the things someone deserves. So the picture might be of you looking at all all that you have, all that you own, and day after day after day giving it away. Every day... You look at what you have and you realize you can't keep this up, yet you do. And you watch everything you have slowly slip away until you have absolutely no possessions left to give. And then you decide to give away the only thing you have left. You give away yourself, your own life. I think that that's what Paul means when he talks about, and though I give my body to be burned, you give away everything else. The only thing you have is yourself, and that to be burned, I think, is you're giving yourself as a sacrifice or as a martyr for someone or something. 
you give it all away. But what Paul says here is without love, even this extreme amount of giving is of no value. No value to that without love. So in verses 1 through 3, Paul lists six gifts that have no value unless they are done in a loving way. I think he's emphasizing in these verses the value of love. And it's as if Paul is saying that all of the gifts, I'm going to try to use all the gifts are a zero. Okay. And uh, you're given more than one gift. So what do you have? Zero. And you exercise another gift and church has another gift and another gift. And what do you have? What do you have when you put a bunch of zeros together? Zero. Okay. But I think what he's saying in this text is like, with, it's like love is a one that you put in front of it. It's like a one. So now what do you have? All the accountants in the room are doing the math, right? What do you have now? You have value. Love gives worth to any of these gifts. I think this is the easy, and there are ways then I think that we can apply this in our own lives to give these ideas new expression. Um, I think, you know, if you're thinking, well, how in the world do I apply this? This is about like tongues and prophecy and all these other gifts, miraculous gifts. I think we can apply it to our own lives. So I'll start with the preacher. I think I could stand up here and think, you know, if I preach with the brilliance or the giftedness of MacArthur or Piper or Spurgeon, but have not love, what does it accomplish me? Nothing. If I perform a musical masterpiece in front of the entire assembly, the whole ecclesia, the whole church, but I didn't do so in love, what do I got? Zero. Though I stand at the front and pray like an angel would in corporate prayer, but I don't have love in the exercise of my gifts or that religious service, I have nothing. I think Paul's point here is that love is more important than your gifts. But then we go down to verses 4 through 7. After demonstrating the value of love in verses 1 through 3, I think a question naturally arises, and that is, well, what is love? What does love look like? And to help us with that, Paul gives us verses 4 through 7. So look in your Bible with me at verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It it does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I want to make a few observations about this list and and what's going on here that I, I, I think or hope will be helpful to you. Uh, First of all, I want you to notice that Paul does not define love in the text. He simply describes it. And I think one of the reasons Paul might have done that is because when you define something, sometimes it loses its beauty. But he will describe it in different ways and and how love responds in different scenarios as he personifies it. Uh, I'll also make the point that Paul, in his description of love, does not use adjectives like we might be tempted to sometimes use regarding love. You know, you could put an adjective in front of it and that would describe it. Instead, Paul uses verbs, 15 of them, 15 verbs, action verbs, pretty much action, to describe love. 
Um, and that's because he understands love as a behavior. Again, in your notes, if you flip to the back side, I'm on the back side in your bulletin, you'll see a quotation from Gordon Fee that I thought was really helpful about why Paul uses verbs. Gordon Fee says this. He says, love is not an idea for Paul, not even a motivating factor for behavior. It is behavior. To love is to act. Anything short of action is not love at all. It's a powerful statement from Fee, and he's basing it on the fact that Paul keeps using verbs. He personifies love. Love is acting. It's doing things. It's demonstrating itself to other people. So as we go through this list, I'm going to divide it up into three parts. Now, I'm not going to give you the blanks for number two yet. You're going to have to hold on. Okay, but we're going to look at the first subpoint. First, we see love's active and passive forms. So in verses 4 through 7, I think there are three little sections here in verse 4. It says, love is patient and kind. These are two basic expressions of love or perhaps two primary expressions of love. He first says love is patient. This is the passive nature of love. This is how it responds to others. The word in some translations is translated long-suffering, and I think that is a good translation because it uh, carries with it the idea of suffering long with another person or refusing to respond in anger or the intense emotional impulse that we might feel strongly. One scholar described the word patience this way. He said patience is the drawing out, the taming, literally the lengthening of emotion. Stretching it out. You know how you sometimes want to respond, like, initially. Patience is the lengthening out, the taming of that. In contradiction to much of the emotionalism many of them would have experienced in their pagan worship where they just, they just responded to their fleshly impulses in emotion, Paul says that love responds with patience and long-suffering with another, suppressing emotional responses and bears long with the other person. Love is patient. It's passive, but it's hard. Then he says love is kind or Love actively shows kindness to others. It's basically saying we need, we need to be nice to others actively. Now I want you to think about most of the conflict or the strife that you've maybe experienced in the last perhaps week or two with someone. Perhaps you have felt relational strife in the last week. I want you to think about what happened, what normally happens when you feel conflict in a relationship? Well, what normally happens is someone does wrong to you. Okay, at least from our perspective. Someone does wrong to you. And then how do we respond? How do you respond? Normally, sometimes, if the relational strife is there, we respond by doing wrong to them. And then how do they respond? Doing wrong. And and what happens is there's a bit of a spiraling effect that's created. And it will go on and on until one of two things happens. Until someone stops it, or until the relationship is so marred that hardly anything is left to it. 
Well, what is the answer to that? The answer is love. Love. Love breaks the downward spiral of anger and self-centeredness or resentment by showing kindness. Kindness to those who've offended us. Is there someone in your family, at work, in this church, with which you are caught in a downward spiral? Is there someone that God would have you demonstrate kindness toward them? This is a basic characteristic of love. This is what love actively does. It is kind. But that leads us to verses four, middle of verse 4 through verse 6 to what love does not do. And what's interesting to me is starting in the middle of verse 4, Paul gives eight negative characteristics of love. And uh, before we take a quick pass through the eight negative characteristics, though, I want to I suggest something to you. Look in the middle of verse 4. Paul says, Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. As you go through this list of different things that love will not do, I don't know if you've ever asked yourself the question, how in the world did Paul get this list? How did he come up with this list of these eight things? Because there's a whole host of things you could say that love does not do. And what I want to suggest to you is that he gets this list from the character and the behavior of the Corinthians themselves. In other words, what I'm going to try to demonstrate to you is that either Chloe's people or the three travelers who came to Paul or the letter that he received or a combination of all of them, demonstrated these sort of things that love would not do. And so as Paul is going down through the list, I want to suggest that the Corinthians should become more and more uncomfortable with what's actually going on. Okay? It's kind of like, can you remember back to your childhood getting in trouble for something, but yet uh, you knew you were going to get in trouble, but yet people didn't know exactly who the, the victim was or who the, the, the culprit was? So imagine, you know, sitting in, the princi- or in your school and the principal comes over, the PA speaker at school. He says, there's been an act of vandalism, actually eight acts of vandalism. And he starts, he says, you know, it's, it's unknown who it is. But you're sitting there and you're thinking, oh, no. And he starts reading down through the list of things. You know, someone did this to a locker and did this to this. And as he's reading through the list, your face gets hotter and hotter. Right? Or it's like your, your mother comes home and someone's broken something in the house and she sits all the kids down and you know you're the one who did it. And it's just a matter of time until your brothers or sisters give you up. <laughs> right? And so your mother says, you know, I came home and I found this broken and this open and someone ate that and someone did this and all along the way you're just like, oh no. As we go through these, this list of eight things that love does not do, I think the Corinthians would be like, Oh, no. Matter of fact, in my outline, here's number two, point number two for you. I think what he's doing in verses four through seven primarily is he's showing them love is the opposite of how you've been behaving. It's the opposite of how you've been behaving. So as we take a pass through these eight things very quickly, I want to show you as well that many or most of these things have already been touched in the letter. First, he says, love does not envy. 
The word envy is a word that can be used negatively or positively of a strong desire. This word envy was used in your Bible in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 3. It's translated by the ESV as jealousy when Paul says, you are full of jealousy and you're full of strife. Are you not of the flesh and behaving only as merely human beings? It's like you don't even have the spirit of God. There, Paul condemns most of the church for being full of envy. And here he shows us that love does not envy. It's the exact opposite of the way some of the Corinthians were behaving. Then he says love does not boast. The word boast means to behave like a braggart. This negative characteristic is true of anyone who wants to call attention to himself or herself. It's like the person in the conversation, you're telling a story, and he says, yeah, that reminds me of when I, you know, and they begin to brag. Although the word bragging or boasting here is a relatively rare word in the New Testament, Paul has spoken often in 1 Corinthians of their failure to boast in Christ or the gospel and to boast in the wrong things. So in chapter 1, the very last verse of chapter 1, Paul says, you need to boast in the Lord. Chapter 3, he reminds them, he says, so let us not boast in men, because they were boasting in men. They were boasting in the wrong things. They are boasting in human giftedness and human eloquence. They're not boasting in the Lord. Uh, they're, they're boasting as well about including immoral believers in their worship. You can look at chapter 5 and verse 6 and see that they're boasting, they're glorying in it. And Paul's using the same word there. And so he says, love does not boast, but he's already pinpointed several ways in which the Corinthians had been boasting in the wrong things. Now, I think one of the things we need to realize about love not boasting is uh, we need to boast, or when we boast in ourselves, our own freedoms, we are not loving others. I want you to think about it for a moment. What happens when you exalt yourself in a conversation? Well, when you exalt yourself, everyone else, including God, is of less importance to you. In fact, I want to make a pretty significant statement. I want to make a a pretty bold statement. That is, uh, it is impossible to build yourselves up without putting others down. I don't think you can do it. It's at least always implied. It's not another church as good as our church. Not other preachers doing it in that way. Boasting ourselves is the exact opposite of love, and yet the Corinthians had been guilty of that. He, he then moves on. He says, love is not arrogant. This could be translated puffed up. At the end of verse 6, Paul says, love is not puffed up or inflated. That's interesting. This word is only used seven times in the entire New Testament, but we've already seen five of them in 1 Corinthians. So throughout this letter, he's, he's, he's informed the Corinthians, you know, instead of mourning, you're inflated about it concerning the immoral sin of the man worshiping in their assembly and, and being allowed to continue. You're puffed up about that. In chapter 8, if you remember how he starts chapter 8, that whole, remember, it was a, a discussion about Christian liberties. is now concerning uh, meat offered to idols. Uh, right near the beginning of that, he says, I want you to know that uh, he says, Knowledge puffs up. It inflates. But love builds up. Remember that? So throughout the letter, Paul has repeatedly told this church they're puffed up or inflated. They're arrogant 
about different things. He's already castigated the Corinthians for being puffed up in chapter 5 and chapter 8. And so what he's telling the Corinthians is love is not arrogant, but that's exactly what you've done in some cases. He then says love is not rude in the beginning of verse 5. You look at the beginning of verse 5, it's not rude. Paul says uh, here, uh, it's not rude. It, the word rude could be translated, love does not commit shameful acts. That kind of communicates what Paul's saying here. Love does not behave indecently. And I think that this word that's used here for rude could often be used of sexual misconduct. And there's all, all sorts of problems with that in Corinth in chapters 5 and chapter 6. And so the Corinthians had already acted in shameful or indecent ways. And Paul is basically reminding them of that here as well. He moves on. Love does not insist on its own way. This could be translated, it's not self-seeking. It's not self-seeking. And that exact same phrase is used two times in chapter 10. Two times in chapter 10. When in verse 24, he says, do not be self-seeking. And in verse 33, he says, I am not self-seeking in the way I use my apostleship. So follow my example. So love does not insist on its own ways. And he says, love is not irritable. Speaks of anger or being provoked to wrath. Love is not easily provoked to anger. I think Paul's speaking here of having a short trigger. Men and women, we should not be people who are easily provoked or angered. You shouldn't be the person in the home that's irritable and everyone knows it. That's the exact opposite of love. You should not be the person at work that is quick to anger and everyone knows it the exact opposite of love. And then he, he says love is not resentful. Uh, in some translations, this is translated something like, does not keep track of wrongs. And I think that's a good sense of it. It does not, literally, you could translate, it does not count, count the bad or the evil. While these last two descriptions are easily found within the actual letter of 1 Corinthians, I think that Paul may still have been aware of certain sins in the congregation uh, perhaps Chloe's people or the three travelers or the letter had revealed these sins. Regardless, what he's saying with this last one here is that true love does not keep records of wrong. And so men and women, in a quick moment of application, we, we cannot keep records or bring up every fault of people in our family, for instance, our spouse or our children. especially in an area of offense, but we need to be willing to forgive them and not bring it up again. Then he finally says, uh, he says here, and love does not rejoice at wrongdoing or rejoice at injustice. And again, I think I could point to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where some of the Corinthians were rejoicing in injustice down at the law courts. They were abusing and defrauding their brothers in Christ and they were rejoicing at the injustices of the law courts because they were getting what they wanted. And so then Paul responds to this vice by saying it more positively, but love rejoices in the truth. So as we take a pass through verses 4 through 6 here, I think the Corinthians should get the picture. Most everything about their behavior contradicts how love would respond. In other words, they're, they're behaving the exact opposite way that, as, as love would. 
Perhaps as we took that quick pass through these eight negative characteristics of love, the pictures become clear to you as well. I've been praying all week that God would use, through his spirit, would use his word to convict and challenge where necessary. Perhaps as you see this full demonstration of love and you can start thinking about, like, you know, is kind, is patient, it bears with people, you know, and, and, and we keep going through the descriptions. God has put his finger on something. My pastoral counsel to you would be to repent and to confess your faults to the people you've offended and to pray for grace. Pray for God's grace to strengthen you, to enable you. For no one person can, can avoid all these eight things without the Spirit of God empowering him and helping him. No one person can, can be patient or kind. The primary characteristics at the beginning without the Spirit of God. And so pray for grace. That leads us to one last point, and that's verse 7. I'll go very quickly through this where we learn what love does. I'm basically just going to read through it and suggest a way to translate it. I think that will help you understand it a bit more. Verse 7 says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. I think with these last four characteristics, Paul tears down the limits of love. Love has no limit in how much it can bear, believe, hope, or endure. And while there are different ways of taking this verse, I would suggest that it probably is best translated like the NIV translates it. Okay? Uh, Just cutting right to the chase for sake of time, I think you could translate something like this. Love always bears, always believes, always hopes, and always endures. I think he's talking about time or when Love functions in this way. And I think that that translation of it helps us, especially when we come to something like believing when someone, you know, someone is telling us the truth, that they're consistently lying to us and we seem to have evidence that they're wrong. I heard someone use this phrase, well, love believes all things, you just need to believe me. The way I'd understand this, though, is I want to suggest that the implied object of all of these words is God. We can believe always about someone else because we have confidence in God. He will do the right thing. He will work in this person's life. If they know Christ, they will come around or God will do something about it. So perhaps your wayward child grieves you. Might I say... Be always believing, always hoping, continue to endure, continue to bear, because God will do the right thing. He will work, er, he can work, and he will work as he sees fit. You can continue to have faith and hope in the all things of your life if you keep your heart focused on God. And so I think this faith or this confidence here is in God and it settles us and it enables us to love other people at all times. Perhaps you have children, um, younger children, and you're just unsettled about, I want to encourage you, keep having faith in God. 
Keep hoping in God. And that will enable you to endure and to bear through the all things of life for his honor and his glory. I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. I want to give you a moment of quiet reflection here before we end. Perhaps there's a fractured relationship in your life. I'd encourage you to pray for grace, to forgive, and to love. But then I also want to just ask you to take a moment here before we leave to consider how you can be kind or patient with the person with which there's a fractured relationship. Perhaps it means writing yourself a note, thinking through, asking God through the Spirit to help you demonstrate these things to other people. Let's just take a moment and reflect on our relationships. Dear Father, as we close this morning, as we consider this great chapter, Lord, we know there's so much to it. Lord, perhaps there's someone in the room who would feel like the Corinthians. As these negative descriptions are read, they could just point to or think of, yeah, that's me, or that's me, or that's me. Lord, I pray that you'd give them grace to see it. That you would enable them to repent of that sin. Or perhaps, Father, there are some in the room that have fractured relationships with another believer in the room. Or another person in their family. And they've not been kind and patient. They've sought their own things, or they've rejoiced at injustices, or any of these other things. I pray that you would convict, but then stir these believers to show Christ-like love to others this week. Lord, may it not be said of us that we're content with fractured relationships, for when we're when we're doing any of these negative characteristics, we're truly not loving. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.